Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. The podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, and particularly the bit in between. With your host, Barry Kirby. And welcome to this episode of the 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. In the previous episodes, we've looked at different aspects of what uh, what work the Chad Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors is doing. And one of the things that we've already done is, is uh, investigate the special interest groups. This week, we're looking at one of the newer interest groups on the block, and it's the AI and Digital in Healthcare. Um, and really, this is a, a, a relatively new group and is the brainchild of uh, Dr. Mark Sajan. And he's here with us today uh, to talk about a, a bit about how he got into what he's doing at the moment, but also to give us a, a an overview and an, a, an idea where the SIG uh, or special interest group is going. So welcome, Mark, and thank you for joining us. Hello, Barry. Thank you for inviting me. So I guess to um, kick us off, could you tell us a bit about what you're doing at the moment? Uh, what is your current role? What, what, what is it you do for the day job? Right. Um, well, I work as a human factors consultant. Um, I set up my own company, which is called Human Factors Everywhere. Um, I'm based in Woking, just outside of London. And in my work, and you know, the company itself uh, focuses on two aspects, really. One is doing applied research around human factors, and the other is providing education and training to people who want to know more about human factors. Um, I look probably, as the name suggests, at, at a pretty broad range of human factors. Um, that's where the name came from, Human Factors Everywhere. It yeah. reflects a bit my personality. I stick my nose into everything, <laughs> you know, I, I probably shouldn't. But no, so I've got a fairly broad interest, really, and that's kind of reflected in, in the company. Um, that said, I think research around human factors, applied research forms the large part of, uh, of the work currently. And I try to occupy a bit the space left unattended by universities. Um, that also reflects my background as an academic. So I was working in academia for about 20 years. Um, and so I, I try to take that, of course, the experiences which I've had from these previous roles and try to apply them now uh, in a kind of, you know, applied fashion of human factors research. Okay. And for anybody who's interested, I will make sure that the links to uh, your company and how to contact you are in the um in the in the podcast description so if anybody who's looking to get in touch with you then um then they can look there and, and easily get hold of you um so like you said you've been practicing in in sort of human factors for quite a substantial period of time um as a as an independent practitioner but also in in the academic world why did you get into human factors in the first place how how did how did that happen that is an excellent question and i think my story, just like you know, other people uh, who have been on this podcast before, is not one of purposeful intent, even though we often like to think that, that it is, but you know, it isn't really. So my first degree was in computer science. Mm -hmm. And actually, we never talked about people. I mean, it sounds a bit weird now, and probably computer science has moved on back when I did my degree, which is now a longer time ago. Um, people, users, uh, were not part of the consideration. Um, I focused specifically on, on two topics, artificial intelligence and reliability theory. Um, and so, you know, that was um, 
back in back in the 90s and it was just something i was interested in at the time artificial intelligence had quite a big hype around it uh in those days um and it was just yeah something quite quite novel quite interesting and so i followed that path but then something unexpected happened as it often uh, does i was um awarded a fellowship by the european union and the European Union had a strong and still has a strong ambition to bring people together. So it involved an element of travel. My travel took me to Italy, which was um, a very nice experience. So it was, you know, part of the grant was you needed to uh, go into a different country. So I came from Germany and I moved to Italy to uh, first to Rome, then to Siena. And the second thing uh, the EU tried to encourage people was multidisciplinary thinking which is both a blessing and a curse, <laughs> I, have to, I have to say. And so it took me to, um, as I was saying, to, to Rome, and I worked with a person called Antonio Rizzo, uh, who was, or still is, a professor at the University of Siena. And that was, that was extremely impactful for me. So he's a cognitive psychologist, and he introduced me to... Uh, theories and types of thinking I had never before been exposed to. And I really cannot overemphasize, uh, you know, the, the impact his thinking and his enthusiasm for the discipline has had on me. And so um, we did some work for the Italian National Railways. It was an ethnographic study. That was my first really encounter with ethnography. I had never heard of it before. It really sounds all quite bizarre, really. But um, I found it so super interesting to have a look at how people in the railways, those were railway signalers, used IT. Because so far, I had only contributed to the design of IT, mostly from a theoretical perspective. And now suddenly I saw it in practice. Or I, I should probably say, didn't see it used in practice. Because the reason why we were brought in is the managers at the at the Italian railway said, you know, we spend so many million pounds of um, euros on this new IT system, and the operators aren't using it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that would actually that be the problem. Yes. And so in in we came to sort out why aren't you using this fancy new IT system? Well, and so you know, just just talking to people, uh, it was actually quite difficult uh, because my Italian at the time was quite poor. It probably still is. But um, observing how people do their work, how work is actually done, and then learning that this system, which was designed probably by very clever engineers, just didn't fit the way they worked, didn't fit the workflows, didn't, didn't fit the way they were thinking about the work and approaching their work. And so that was quite a revelation. There is actually somebody using that stuff, which yeah, we've yeah. been designing without consideration for, for human factors, really. So that was, that was a real eye-opener. And I, I got so sucked into it and so interested into these kind of aspects that I decided to do a PhD, supervised then by Antonio Rizzo, okay. uh, on the topic. But... It's quite interesting because with my computer science background, um, you know, you do a PhD, which is on a fairly narrow topic. And you read a lot on your narrow topic. So my topic was the use of cultural historic activity theory to analyze 
social technical systems and especially that case study which we had started with the railways okay. and so yes I, I read a lot around that uh, and I have to say the writings of Vygotsky for example have stayed with me ever since every time I look at, at something new I look at it through the eyes of Vygotsky that's for sure <laughs> um, but I did feel some uncertainty I felt a bit as if I didn't have the necessary foundation for, okay. for the PhD. And so I embarked on an undergraduate course concurrently at the uh, German equivalent of the Open University. It's the Fernuniversität in Hagen. So it's a kind of distance university thing. Okay. That worked quite well for me. And so I embarked on an undergraduate degree in psychology uh, and philosophy. Just to give me that kind of foundational knowledge which which I felt I was lacking there. So you were doing a PhD and then you took on an undergrad degree at the same time? Concurrently, yes. Yeah. Wow. I, I'm not going to call you insane, but I, wow. <laughs> well, well, really, it, it, kind of, it, it came from this uncertainty. I'm not sure whether it's just me, but maybe other people, you know, will feel similar when you come from a different background, from, yeah. a, you know, from an engineering background, then you embark on a human factors PhD. Um, you know, sometimes you just want to know more about things and you yes. feel a bit unsure and because you're, you're specialized and narrow and I, I needed a bit, you know, the breadth for the, for the foundation. It's and you know, it, it, it kind of, yeah, it, it fed into the PhD in any case. So yeah. it, was, yeah. it was quite, um, and so I, I had that foundation then, which, which really helped me. And yeah, ever since I've been, a human factors person. Actually, I, I mentioned earlier, multidisciplinary working is a blessing and, and a curse. So it is a blessing because it is super interesting just to look at things from different perspectives. Yeah. And so I've been looking at safety predominantly uh, from different perspectives. First, from an engineering perspective, hardware reliability theory uh, was first perspective. Then software reliability theory um, was my second perspective, and then the human and organizational perspective. And all of that is super interesting, super helpful. You appreciate more, uh, you know, how, well, what contributes to safety, I should say, the different elements that make a system safe or that lead to, to failure on occasion. This podcast is supported by K-Sharp, the human science research and human factors consultancy. If you want to know how innovating in the relationship between humans and technology can add value to your business, product, or research, then visit www.ksharp.co.uk. I don't know whether it's just me, but... Um it sometimes feel as if you don't know where you belong, if that makes <laughs> sense. Yeah. And so, you know, sometimes, yeah, people ask you what you do and you have to take a step out and think, what, what is it? How do I, how do I represent myself to people? If only it were as simple as saying, you know, I'm, I don't know, I'm an engineer, but am I really an engineer? Because, you know, I've been now doing ethnographic studies. Um, does yeah. that still qualify as engineering? But um, what are you? And then I did a lot of work in healthcare. 
And healthcare is yet very different uh, and difficult field to get into if you are not from a clinical background. So again, here's the multidisciplinary working, super interesting to talk to all these clinicians uh, and people who do fantastic jobs in, in a healthcare environment. I worked a lot with people in emergency care. Very stressful environment. All the observations which I did uh, on the shop floor were super interesting. I did a lot of work around handover between people. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, communication is a big topic, of course, in healthcare as it is in other industries. And that is that is very interesting. But again, you know, you have to explain yourself. Why are you here? Yes. And <laughs> have is, you have you got it down yet? Because I mean, I've got to admit, this is one of the areas where I struggle. Um, you, you walk into a new audience, uh, a new group of people, whatever it is, and they say, uh, you say, oh, I'm, I'm a human factors practitioner, however you describe it. So, so what, what is that then? Um, mm. I haven't got a, uh, a description that is less than probably half an hour uh, because of the nature. I just, I mean, even to my parents, I, they're still not entirely sure what it is that I do because um, because I think it is, it's almost a very simple but yet very complex thing to explain. Um, so it's it's interesting to see that I'm not the only person with it, with, with that problem, mm. so, which is good. Indeed, indeed. Um, but, and I think that's, that's why I would suggest to people, look for your professional home. And so, for example, the Chartered Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors is such a professional home. Yeah. And you can come from different backgrounds, of course, but, you know, it does give you a, a title in a way. So you can say, I am a Chartered Human Factors uh, Specialist. Um, and that might not represent everything you do, but it gives you something to refer to. It gives you a baseline. It gives you a bit of um, a value system in yes. a way which um, I have to confess, sometimes I was, I was kind of lacking. I was confused as I mo- was moving around from different industries to a, from one industry to another. And then in healthcare, where the research tradition, tradition is, is a bit different. They've got their own traditions, they've got their own value systems. So while I was working in healthcare for about 15 years, um, I was often referring to myself not as a human factors, specialist or practitioner or researcher, but as a health services researcher. Right. Yeah. Because I was applying social science research methodologies, as I would describe it, to understand how health systems work and function safely, yeah. ideally. <laughs> yes. So I didn't refer to myself for for long periods of time as a human factor specialist. Right. And so I think that is an important role which professional bodies like the Chartered Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors can actually fill uh, and that is super useful for people coming into the profession to give them that kind of sense of self in a way, professional self. Absolutely um, and so yes and if anybody wants to go to the um, um, Institute and find out more then we'll, uh, again we'll put the links on the um, on, on the description of this and also that you can find them all over this podcast. Um, so you, you mentioned that you've spent quite a lot of time in, in academia. Do you want to just give us a whistle-stop tour through what, through your academic roles? Because anybody who goes on your LinkedIn page, and again, I would encourage people to go and look on your LinkedIn page, that um, you've, not to put too fine a word on it, but you've been around the block, it would seem. Um, so what sort of things have you did you get specifically involved in, in, in the academic side? I would say it is a typical academic CV in terms of you move around quite a lot. And there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, so, you know, 
typically you're employed on postdoc uh, projects, which is anything between 12 months to about three years. That's the usual lifespan and it's time to, to move on. Um, so the, the type of work which I've done um, is really quite diverse. Uh, I did a lot of work in aviation, for example. I did a very interesting project um, which had a simple, seemingly simple, but very ambitious research question. How do you run a safe aviation business? Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yes, indeed. That, that was very interesting. Um, but it was super fun, super insightful, because I was able to do interviews with senior leaders in the aviation industry to understand you know, from their perspective, how do you run a safe business? And specifically, we were interested here not in what makes your business safe or you know, what is safety for you, but the integration of business and safety. Okay. And, you know, that, that was very insightful, uh, just being able to talk to these people, which are usually quite hard to get hold of. But then, as I was, as I was saying, um, healthcare formed a large part of my academic career, where in the early days, um, safety was not really a big topic. Human factors uh, was limited very much to the perception of it's about teamwork. It is what pilots are very good at. So yep. that's that's something which came in as a very strong uh, image in a way. And so I tried to do a lot of education initially, providing training to, to people around broader aspects of human factors and safety science, uh, understanding risk, even though risk in healthcare is a very difficult not to crack, really. And then I did a lot of, so a lot of my work is ethnographic in nature, even though that's a big word. So I should probably say it uses techniques from ethnography okay. or more broadly from social science. I interview, I do a lot of interviews with people. I do observations. So it's not really hardcore ethnography. Yeah. Um, I do work on handover. I do work on the adoption and use of technology. And more recently, I've been doing uh, work on artificial intelligence. How can we introduce it in healthcare in a safe way? Okay, so I mean that that's quite a um, a broad spread, and, and just really the the uh, the journey you've made from aerospace, which is kind of where I started as well, um, in, in sort of that domain, but then transitioned sort of into healthcare. Um, and you seem to really because, like I say, the 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 healthcare in human factors terms is still a very evolving. Um, almost still quite a new thing, that, that, despite the number of studies that's, that's been involved. Um, how have you found, so and now you've, you've obviously had experience in the um, in industrial sector as well, how have you found the differences between applying, uh, I guess, human factors or looking at human factors in academia and in industry? What do you think the, um, how, how have you found that, the differences between them? Well, <clears throat> I think it's been for me personally, um, a very positive move into industry, simply because I guess it's my my personal interest is more on the applied side of things. Okay. Um, in academia, you can often um, just live for the academic purpose in a way. Yeah. Um, so you know, your next paper <laughs> is basically all you're thinking about. 
Okay. And you, you sometimes lose a bit sight of what is actually important to people, what is important to organizations. And um, after 20 years, I did feel a bit constrained or too constrained around managing research rather than actually doing it. Okay. Um, you know, I didn't really want to think about, you know, how can I set up my research project not to solve or to address or to learn something of interest, but to get into that journal, which gives me a four star paper. And often when you meet, you know, academic colleagues, it's almost like you, you know, the, the, by way of introduction. And by the way, my four star papers on whatever topic is. <laughs> yeah. this. So you kind of that's that's your handshake, basically. Here's my four star paper. Um, and so, no, I mean, working in industry, I'm still doing applied research largely. Yep. Um, so I'm still using my research skills, but I'm much closer to, I think, what matters to people. And I'm much more liberated now or at liberty to investigate things which, which I find interesting. Mm -hmm. I can do a lot of the research uh, myself. Um, I don't need to manage or be a research manager. Uh, I do enjoy interviewing people. I enjoy doing observations, even though right now this is, of course, uh, not possible. Mm -hmm. But just getting out and about, um, talking to people, trying to see, um, you know, what problems they have at work when they use technology, for example. Uh, that's quite interesting. Seeing, you know, how we can improve their work environment. Um, and that can be seemingly simple things such as having more breaks at work. But actually, they, they make all the world of difference. I mean, I, I was talking to people who work in a control room environment um, and they were saying, you know, it's, it's actually quite a stressful job. And um, we, we purposefully limit the intake of fluid so that we need less toilet breaks because we can't just walk away. Um, wow. yeah. And, you know, so you know, trying to, to you know, help people with these kind of things, uh, trying to assess the workload and just make work life better for them is, is quite quite nice. And in a way, that reminds me to what you were asking earlier. How do you describe what you do? I often say I watch other people do their work. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess, and I guess that almost describes it in a nutshell. I like that. If you are a human factors practitioner or in a related discipline and are not already a member, then do look up the Chartered Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors. They are the professional institution for all human factors practitioners. Find them at www.ergonomics.org.uk. Obviously, you made reference to looking at how people work, and at the moment, we're still going through the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, have you, I, I presume you've been working from home. How, how have you found that? Um, well, I, I, mean, I have to say I've been very lucky. Um, I have colleagues who actually contracted uh, the virus, younger colleagues who have been very poorly. Um, and it, it took them and still takes them a long time to, to get back to normal. So it is definitely you know, a very um, bad experience for, for many people. In that respect, I have been lucky. No one here has been affected. Um, so we've been all safe and well, um, also relatives and, and family and friends. And working, I mean, I was quite lucky. The type of work I do lends itself quite well to just keep going, even if it's done remotely. Um, so, for example, a lot of the interviews I could do online. Yeah. 
um, using Teams, for example, or Zoom or other kind of programs or just good old fashioned phone. Um, what I found is that people are now more open to just a quick phone call or you know a quick interview or a video chat or something than they were before. Um, I think they're getting used to that idea yeah. of remote working. Um, so it saved me a lot of, of travel time as well, because often when you do interviews, it, it works out in one of two ways. Either you travel a long distance and you do a 45 minute interview and then you travel a long distance back. Yes. And you, you try to get some work done on the train, which sometimes works, but often doesn't. Or to make the most of your time, you have like five, six, seven interviews, one after the other. And, you know, once you're halfway through, you're completely kind of numb in, in your in your mind, basically. And you you can't really take in the subtleties of, of what people are are saying. And you, you sometimes then forget to ask questions or, you know, prompt people to yes yeah. to go further into detail so that said i mean i've been lucky i think um i've adapted quite well to it um some aspects have been more challenging than others closure of schools for example yes uh, yeah. definitely um, caused a bit of readjustments let's yes. put it like that but by and large no i think it's been okay um, but as I was saying other people have suffered so it's not a, an ideal situation of course. No no absolutely. Um, you mentioned earlier about obviously you're very much thinking about the artificial intelligence and, and use of digital in healthcare now this clearly has had an impact on you because um, you've kicked off this new special interest group um, so it's the um, artificial intelligence and digital in healthcare special interest group. Um, why? Why, why, why did why did you start it? Well, that is that is actually um, completely down to our now not so new chief executive, right. uh, Nurzaman Rashid, because I have to pay a great compliment to him. Um, he came in as um, some someone who is very energetic, yes, and who uh, is open to new ideas, who wants to. Uh, you know, get things done and just um, spread the word about human factors uh, in the community, but also into communities who have uh, not heard of human factors before. Mm -hmm. And so I did a research project on um, the use of artificial intelligence in intensive care. And during that research project, we had two patient representatives, well, one patient and one patient representative on our advisory group. And we wrote a paper uh, with the two patients together. Actually, it was more like, in a way, what we were doing here, I was having an interview or a discussion, an open right. discussion with our two patient representatives. Initially, the, the working title was called something like, Are Patients Like Cars? Right, and okay. the, reason, the reason for that is a lot of the artificial intelligence hype, uh, which we see in the news, has been around autonomous driving, so autonomous vehicles, basically. And so we, we had a chat, in essence, about, you know, are patients like cars? Uh, what do patients think about it? The reason we were having this approach is because 
I think, and I'm not alone in, in thinking that, we need to involve patients more in research. Actually, in healthcare, I can't even claim kind of credit for that. In healthcare, that is a, a big topic. How do we okay. involve patients more in research? And I, ha I had read a paper by someone which was co-authored with patients, and I thought that's an excellent idea, and I would like to do that on this project as well. Okay. To cut a long story short, that paper was, was published under a different title. It was more, more generically human factors challenges of using artificial intelligence in healthcare, but the patients were co-authors. And Norzeman, uh, in some way, must have picked up on the paper. <laughs> and so he contacted me and said, you know, I'm, I'm new as chief executive of the Chartered Institute of Organized Human Factors. I read your paper. Would you like to have a chat about it? And so that was pre-COVID-19. We were actually able to meet in person. And I was really kind of inspired by his energy, by his positive attitude. And um, so we sat uh, over a drink and, and we kind of were musing around what could we do and really should the Chartered Institute as the professional body of human factors not have a position mm -hmm. on artificial intelligence in healthcare or even more broadly across the, the industry. So that is really where the idea for the special interest group was was born. So it was uh, our kind of collaborative thinking that really the Institute should have a position. Even more so since we have a lot of members who know a lot of things about AI, much more th than I do. It was just I happened to have kind of apparently time. I didn't really have time. But <laughs> <laughs> Always ask but, a busy person to do things. Yes, get done. <laughs> but, but is very good at kind of persuading you that actually you do have time <laughs> and it is a worthy cause. And so, yeah, that was really the the idea. So initially it was just me um, kind of setting up the framework for the special interest group and then starting to talk to people. Um, whether they'd be interested, organizing the first meeting uh, and just getting things moving. Mm -hmm. And so the mission of the uh, our special interest group, which is a bit broader than just artificial intelligence, it's artificial intelligence and digital health, is to formulate the position of the Chartered Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors on human factors of AI and digital health but also to do a bit more, to engage with stakeholders, to provide human factors expertise to those who might need it. So for example, in the NHS, we have NHS X, who are, uh, let's say the body responsible for taking forward the digital transformation of healthcare. And you know, we have discussions with them. We have discussions with people from BSI, who are the British Standard Standardization Institute, who publish a lot of standards relevant uh, in healthcare. And so we try to engage with these yeah. people, try to put human factors on the agenda. We had a round table with a lot of regulators in healthcare, and actually everybody was very open and receptive and saying, yes, human factors is actually important, but they need to know more. And right. who better placed than you know the professional body for human factors to come up with some form of guidance about AI uh, and digital health. If you are new to human factors and ergonomics, you might be wondering exactly what it is. In a nutshell, 
Human Factors is the study of how humans behave physically and psychologically in relation to particular environments, products, or services. As you will no doubt realize, that means Human Factors practitioners can add value to almost any project because they all involve people. The trick is getting that value as early in the project as you can because it ends up being much cheaper than fixing the issues later on. You've made a distinction there between artificial intelligence and, and digital. What do you see the differences being? I mean, I get that there are lots of various nuances, interpretations of all the different things, but where do you, on, in, for, for the, a lay person like myself to understand? Well, I'm not even going anywhere close giving you a definition or attempting to give a definition <laughs> of AI. I leave that to AI experts. But in essence, I mean, digital health is anything around the digital transformation of the NHS. I mean, the NHS is a large organization. It was largely paper-based yeah. until very recently. Primary care were the early adopters of the electronic health records, for example, and going digital in that respect. Um, hospitals were much slower, but have been encouraged to uh, well, become, for lack of a better word, more digital. But really what it means is adopt more technology, yeah. offer services through new technologies. So, for example, um, I was working on a project a few years back, which looked at whether we can use digital clinical communication to support young people living with a chronic condition. I mean, that could be, for example, diabetes or other kind of chronic conditions. Um, the reasoning was, and that was pre-COVID-19, of course, that young people, when they communicate, they often do it via text messaging, WhatsApp, and so on and so forth. And so the thinking was, should the NHS not use these services as well. I mean, in particular in mental health, a lot of studies have shown that when children transition from the pediatric uh, mental health services to the uh, adult mental health services, there's, there's a large dropout and that affects health outcomes significantly. And so, you know, the thinking is, can we not use digital technologies like Skype and you know these kind of things, to uh, just provide a better service and okay. better health outcomes for for young adults, basically. So that's you know the digital agenda is very broad. AI plays an important part, but AI is predominantly around machine learning algorithms. And so, you know, important examples which have been published and talked about are, for example, using AI to identify um, breast cancer from a mammogram. Right. Okay. So these are, uh, you know, imaging has been probably the strongest field where AI has been used in healthcare. Yeah, uh, that's fascinating because obviously there, there is so much scope and, and potential for use. Um, but I think that it would be fair to say that people are quite still quite concerned about the use of um, algorithms especially today um for, for around you know like what, what's been happening where the government's used an algorithm to look at um, um uh, exam grades and things like that so mm. um how should we be engaging with with people with patients with healthcare users about the use of ai and digital how do we how do we put mm. them at ease or or do we put them at ease <laughs> well so you are saying people 
are concerned. I would challenge that, and I say, <laughs> I love a challenge. Come on then. <laughs> I, I don't want to be. I, I don't want to come across as negative. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I think people should be more concerned. And when I say people, maybe some of the policymakers are a right. bit too uh, too eager. I mean, of course, you know there are lots of factors that go into uh, policy decisions, and of course, you want to appear positive. You want to appear, you know forward-looking and you want to promote the adoption of technology into the health service. So in, in that respect, um, you know, I think that is that is fair and well. From a safety perspective and from a human factors perspective, I would encourage a bit more caution, probably. I think there is there's quite a hype around what AI and machine learning can deliver. I read um, a really fascinating book by um, Eric Topol, very influential uh, physician who has done a lot of work around AI, and he compiled a list of what he calls the outlandish expectations of AI in, in healthcare, and it's, it's quite entertaining, really. He says, you know, it will. The expectations are AI will outperform doctors at every task. AI will cure the incurable. AI will diagnose the undiagnosable. AI right. will, you know, eliminate cancer and so on and so forth. And obviously, I think some people, or there's a danger that some people get carried away too much. Yeah. And that is that is reflected, I think, a bit in the in the literature. A lot of the AI in healthcare literature is around the performance of algorithms on certain test and validation sets. But there are very few studies that have demonstrated what AI can do when embedded into a clinical system. Right. And I think that is where our perspective becomes very relevant, because we are all about the system. We want to understand the interactions between technology and people and the organization. But in, in the practice of AI in healthcare, that is currently lacking. So most of the studies have claims such as our deep neural network, which looks at breast cancer or at mammograms, you know, outperforms radiologists, but usually on a small sample size, and it hasn't been embedded into clinical practice, into a clinical okay. system. Yeah. And there was just recently um, a sobering paper in, in the British Medical Journal, which actually looked at, I think, 90 or so studies of using deep neural networks for uh, medical diagnosis. And it said, actually, the evidence for supporting these claims that AI outperforms doctors, uh, that evidence base ex is extremely narrow. Right. And yeah. quite, quite limited and with lots of holes and, and gaps in there. So I think we need to be a bit more cautious, optimistic, but cautious. But then, quite importantly, you put your finger on a really important issue. How do we engage with patients, with the public um, around AI? Now, I did, I did do an interview study on this topic. And it was, as always with interviews, super interesting what people were saying. By and large, my conclusion from these interviews is people are very optimistic but they place a lot of trust in the NHS and by extension into people who regulate or don't AI. Okay. So for example, you know, patients were saying, 
yeah, I mean, you know, I'm all for it if it makes me better, you know, yeah. or they were saying, well, if it's going to be used in the NHS, then of course it's going to be safe. Oh, and I'm see. thinking, yeah. Yeah. and I'm thinking, hmm, <laughs> but I would like to see the evidence that it is yeah, actually yeah. safe. And so, you know, they, they have a lot of implicit trust in the brand of the NHS. And right. the question which we and, and everybody in the NHS need to ask ourselves is, do we live up to that trust? Do we merit that trust? What can we do to really honor that trust? And that comes then back a lot to, first of all, regulation. Um, so I think we, as human factor specialists, need to support regulators. Um, we need to support developers of technology. As, as I mentioned, my background in computer science, for example, a long time ago, I hadn't considered users. It's fairly normal to kind of focus on the exciting bit of the technology. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, you know, all with the developers of AI, super clever people, and they get excited about very technical issues, which <laughs> I wouldn't be able to comprehend now. Um, but the users might not be at the forefront of their mind and probably shouldn't be because, you know, they focus on technological aspects. And that is where the multidisciplinary working comes back in. So interviewing people, interviewing patients. Um, there was a question around how much do uh, patients and the public really need to know about AI? Um, it often conjures up the image of robots yeah. um, and something like, you know, what is referred to as general uh, artificial intelligence so you know almost they can do anything like a person would do whereas a lot of the applications are fairly narrow in, yeah. in, in what they can do so maybe you know the public shouldn't be expected to become experts of artificial intelligence but maybe some of the distinctions and limitations i think there is a lot about understanding the limitations not just patients and the public but healthcare users as well, so healthcare professionals. So do you think there is um, something there then about we need to be a lot more open with the public around, like, say, the work of NHSX, uh, they, them, them, the branches of the healthcare authorities that are looking at more future experimental things? Because we might be, and I'm going to put this very bluntly, I guess, but sneaking stuff under the radar that people don't realise under the brand of the NHS. And there is an, you're right, I mean, the, the NHS is one of the most loaded healthcare systems in the world because of the nature of the way it provides care, um, and rightly so. But do you think actually there's um, there's a need for us to be more explicit and say, well, actually, we do, we're using this stuff. This is where the NHS is trying to move forward with things, and uh, I guess I guess understand that uncertainty. Yes, I think transparency is really important. I mean, you know, I, I didn't really want to criticize anybody's work. Um, and NHSX, for example, have done a very good job of, yeah. of producing a short and concise guidance called, um, I think it's the the e-buyer's guide to artificial intelligence or something. Yes. Yeah. And I think that document is, I mean, as short and as it is, it's, it's super important because it appreciates that people who are in procurement yes. in yep. the NHS currently probably don't understand a lot about artificial intelligence. They don't have the necessary background or expertise. And this guide just helps them to kind of think about questions to ask or, you know, the right questions to ask. Yeah. Um, 
And so I think that that has been a good p piece of work. Uh, and I think we need more of that. And that is also where our special interest group tries to come in. We yeah. try to produce um, some form of guidance. We try to work with these organizations so that they become more competent in human factors as well. Um, of course, you know, we need to be modest in what we can achieve. And yes, again, absolutely. we don't want to convert them into experts. We want to signpost the expertise that is available within the Chartered Institute of Organomics and Human Factors, within the membership and actually outside of, of that yeah. community as well. That, that, that's fantastic. The Obviously, the as you said, the there's the special interest group is is still taking somewhat baby steps you've 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 bought it you've you bought it into the world and it's now is trying to work out um its next steps what do you think what are the next steps for the special industry interest group yes so we are we are working hard um currently on identifying and aggregating human factors topics that are of interest to uh, to the wider community and we are organizing a webinar um, which I shall take the opportunity to advertise here. It will take place on the 16th of September. Mm -hmm. um, and the webinar will be in the form of a panel, really, where we just discuss some of these ideas with people, for example, from the NHS to identify. In a way, it's a kind of almost a stakeholder analysis exercise yeah. where we uh, get their views, where we exchange ideas and just, you know, identify topics to take forward. Um, you know, some of these topics are, as we already touched upon, things around training, for example, and what do people need to know about uh, AI. A lot of people have said, for example, we are very interested, but actually we don't really know what good AI looks like. We need to be shown the difference between good and bad. Yeah. And I think you know, that's, that's where we can make a contribution, helping designers uh, of AI as well to uh, think about how do we embed um, the algorithms into clinical practice. So the webinar, um, working with stakeholders and the community, and maybe then producing a guidance, a white paper, uh, so that people have somewhere to go as a starting point when they want to move forward. That's brilliant, Mark. And I'd just like to say a personal thank you for you to um, spending uh, an hour this morning with me to uh, give us some uh, some insight into firstly yourself um, and also your motivations behind setting up the sake. I think thank you very much for for doing it. It's clearly a, a vital topic for the future and something I think will largely inform not only healthcare but other sectors as well. So thank you very much for that. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Um, so, and thank you at home for wherever you're at uh, for listening to this episode of the 1202 The Human Factors podcast. If you do get five minutes, please do go to wherever you've been listening to the podcast and rate it um, and provide your feedback because uh, other people, um, I believe, are trying to find this podcast and the more you rate it, then the more people will be able to find it and we'll be able to spread the good word about human factors. But for now, um, go, uh, hopefully everybody's keeping well and look forward to hearing you on the next one. Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us at www.barrykirby.co.uk and on Twitter at B-A-Z underscore K. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense.